looked back at the fall of Adam and where that shame originated from, but we realize that we have faith in the future that we don't need to fear in this present day because we are immediately covered by faith at the moment that we take reception of Christ in our lives. When we have the revelation that Jesus is not only our Savior, but our Lord as well, that those are two inseparable truths. That to have Him as our Savior is to also have Him as our Lord. And because of that, the Spirit works within us to sanctify us, to help us grow and to to bear fruit. And in that growth and in that bearing, we are covered continually by this amazing gift of righteousness that is ours in Christ that will never, we never have to fear being disrobed. We never have to fear being ashamed again because we have this eternal righteousness that is our own as a gift from Christ. Appropriated solely by faith in His work on our behalf. But why then do we continue on with fear about coming before the Lord's judgment seat. Can we live a life fearlessly? And when I say that, I'm not speaking of can we live a life without respect or awe of who God is. Any real believer will tell you that if they've ever sensed the presence of God in their life, there is no trouble understanding the awe and the respect that is due. I sometimes chuckle when we think that somehow in the illumination of who God is one day that we're just going to be like little kindergartners and run up to Him and grab Him on the leg and and say, oh, Grandpapa's here. And if that should happen, you will be the first of Scripture in redemptive history to ever do that. Every other person who's ever seen God in His glory has fell at His feet as though dead. And it has taken the grace of God to condescend and to touch them as He did the Apostle John and say, fear not, it's me. You see, there never needs to be a fear for those of us who know the tremendous glory of God, the holiness of God, the glory of who God is and all that He is to begin to take that for granted. And it's there that we find, I have a deep need. I have a deep need for the righteousness of Christ to cover me before the throne of God. But in that too, I must understand and We must understand that boldness of grace that is ours that Paul continues to write here in the fifth chapter that is eternal. That this is not some punctiliar event, some dot on the timeline that says this is good only for now. But to live as people boldly who follow God knowing that that same righteousness is ours before the throne of God on the day of judgment. That that righteousness will be ours in the moment that we pass from this life into the real life that we have in God. 
C.S. Lewis puts it, the moment that we find that the nightmare is over and everything is okay. Paul takes us on a journey back into the Old Testament here, back to compare Adam and Christ, leveling out these two men before us, that we might know the truth of who they are and the gift that each one gives and the future that each one offers. Many of you know I grew up on the St. John's River down in the state of Florida. If you've ever been to the St. John's River, you'll understand what I'm saying. It's a dark, dark river. You can't see more than one foot down. If you put your hand in the water and reach down an elbow's length, you'll, you won't see your hand. The, the water there is brown. But it's not dirty. It's actually very clean. What gives it its brown tint, its dark tint, is the tannin and the centuries and upon centuries of leaves of the cypress tree falling into the, the river and giving it a dark tint. The interesting thing, though, of this 300-mile-plus-mile river is if you were to go down it and get down towards the headwaters, it would be dark and skinny, and the, and the further down you get, the slimmer it gets. And then all of a sudden it opens up, and where it opens up is this crystal clear boiling water called Blue Springs. It is there that the fountain of that river begins to flow. Paul is calling us back to that very river here to say, look at the source of your salvation. The spring of the well of Christ's blood that has flowed for you and I. What, are the, what is the truth of these two men, Adam, Christ? Well, Paul has said that Adam was a type of Christ, but he was a type of Christ that failed. You see, our, our father of the flesh was given a covenant to keep. He was given orders in the garden. You remember them. Don't eat from the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good. Don't eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in doing so, God created Adam to be the keeper of the covenant, the mediator of the covenant, the one who would protect creation, the one who would be the representation of of God to his people. Of course, we know that Adam blew it. And in that failing to keep that work that God had given him to do, The wages of that were death. Oftentimes, here's what we misunderstand about that. Is that not only did Adam break the covenant, and not only did Adam bring physical death into mankind's existence, but Adam transformed the entire human race that was originally created in our father Adam To be eternal. To not have death. And the catastrophic event that happened at the falling of Adam and the breaking of the covenant was a transformation that happened genetically so within him that death entered into this world not only as 
the event of death, but that we would become dying beings. Those of you who have been in some of my classes have heard that before, that it's not just the problem of death itself, but if we were to look at a timeline, if God is life and eternal life, eternally on this line going into life, then death is the opposite of who God is and eternally on this line continually dying. On one hand, we have eternal life, eternally living, but in Adam now we have been transformed to eternal death and eternally dying, going deeper and deeper and deeper and further and further and further away from God. And unless some event happens to transform and redeem us from this line of eternal death back into living beings, we will never know what it is to be eternally alive. And so Paul, the Apostle Paul, points back to Adam and his breaking of the covenant. And he says, this is how, this is what happened to you. This is how you got depraved. This is how you're all messed up in your thinking. This is what has happened to you genetically. Paul also says in Corinthians 15 that that Adam was the originator of all sin, that there was an original sin, and that sin not only happened to Adam, but it infected us as the prodigy, as the genetic heirs of who Adam is. The King David, the psalm, in Psalm 51 says not only was he conceived in sin, his mother was a sinner and he was conceived in sin, that he was born destined to die. That there is absolutely zero life within us. There is not an inkling of anything that we would have an ability to reach out to undo what has genetically been done to us. Sometimes we're bold enough to think, gosh, that's kind of unfair that God would do that to Adam and that I've got to pay for it. But that's not the only problem. The problem is, is you became a dying being. And there's nothing more antithetical to the eternal source of life than death. There's nothing more repulsive to that which is eternal life than eternal death. It wasn't just that Adam did something wrong by eating a piece of fruit out of a bowl. You see, redemption, or I'm sorry, rebellion had already happened. It had happened in heaven already where the angels had fallen. The true depth of Adam's sin was this, that he joined in the rebellion. That he, he and his wife, Eve, said, God, we're against you. We are your enemy. And in doing so, they joined hell against God. And they took that which was beautiful and incorruptible and brought ugliness and corruption. And that is the inherited lineage 
lineage of all mankind. And we are born that way. Unless there's an intervention on our behalf, there is no life. There's only eternal separation and agony and shame. Paul writes that just as sin came from Adam into the world through this one man and death. Notice the coupling of sin and death. That it wasn't just that Adam blew it, but that Adam blew it in an effectual way for all of us. And because we're his children in the flesh, death is our destiny as well through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sin. For sin indeed was in the world before the law. What is Paul saying? Paul's saying because of Adam, because of his sin, we've always been sinners. We didn't need the law to tell us that we were sinners. We didn't need the law to understand that there was a Attribute, a characteristic of ours, which is death. Yet it reigned from Adam to Moses. Even over those who are sinning. But then Paul, in verse 15, contrasts the gift from Christ. From Adam we have a gift of death and corruption. But from Christ we'll see a better Adam. If Adam was a type of the Christ to come, and we understand that God had given Adam the law and the way that he was to operate within the garden and mediate from the covenant and to protect and to be the representative of God before the creation, and yet he fell. We see a better Adam, a more perfect Adam, the true Son of God, Spirit of Spirit, take on the flesh of man to live out covenantally before God in complete obedience to keep the covenant so that there might be redemption for you and I. That Christ comes as a better Adam. That Christ comes as an obedient Adam. That Christ is obedient even unto death on the cross to crush Satan's head. To take his wife, literally the church, and move her aside and tell the devil face to face, this is God's creation and I'm his representative. And I will take your head under my heel and I will crush you to death. And this is Paul saying the reality of that truth is the reality that you and I live in today. That these are two atoms of the Scripture that are intertwined with one another. The one who fell and the one who redeemed and was obedient. 
He was the better covenant keeper. He was the conqueror of the rebellion. He put an end to the war of hell upon the creation of God to reign victorious as king forevermore. Soon the day will come where we will see that one man who is also truly God on his throne where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess he is Lord. It's the truth of who he is. The truth is in Adam we're depraved. There's death and destruction. But in like manner, we are offered by faith life. This is that interruption on the lifeline or the death line where Christ speaks to us through the Spirit, even to some right now and in this moment. That by faith, redemption is offered and we are removed from this line of death and eternal dying into life and eternal living. Amen. That you and I right now, by the power of the Holy Spirit, are placed in this moment to live fully and abundantly with a full expectation that we will always live this way. What if you woke up this morning and you found out that you had the six lucky numbers? You wouldn't worry about your bills, would you? You might be sitting in the pew thinking everything's going to be okay. I know what I'd be thinking. 60-foot Hatteras, here I come. New boating ministry. But wouldn't your worries and your anxiety for the most part subside, at least for a little while, until you talk to the lawyer about all the things you've got to do? But maybe just for a moment, you might go, it's going to be okay. But something much greater than that has happened to you and me. Not just something temporarily that waste and burns and rust and moth come and eat. Not something that the economy can take away from us on any given whim. Whoever is in the White House or whoever's in Congress, whatever happens on the world scene, Nothing can take away from us the riches that are ours in the glory of Christ, eternally so. And that in this truth of who Jesus is, He offers us redemption from the curse of death and eternal dying into the promise of eternal life and glory. Shouldn't that change the way we look at the world? Shouldn't that change the way we look at life in the present? And certainly shouldn't that give us an assurance of our future. So let's look at that, the the gifts of these two men. Where Adam brings death and separation and continual dying, we see Jesus bringing redemption and justification and eternal life. How did we get it? We continue on in verse 16. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For judgment followed the trespasses brought condemnation but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification for if by one man's trespass death reigned how much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man jesus 
See, what Paul is saying here is it's so much better than death. If you and I are to look at dying and being dying beings, we see an awfulness about it. We see something that that we just don't really care for very much. And yet we also know that for all of us physically, that's a destiny that we all have. Save the Lord, return. And it makes us uncomfortable. It makes us wonder what's, what's going on. And at the root of that wondering is this. The root of that mystery is this. You weren't meant to die. The discomfort, the fear, comes from something deep within us that understands we were created to live forever. And as ugly and as uncomfortable and disconcerting as it is to die, how much more so, God says, than it must be to live. How much more glorious is life over death? How much more experiential is life over death? How much more beautiful is life over death? The destruction is really bad. But the redemption is really, 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 really good. And if our certainty is death, then how much more certainty is our redemption for life? See, as certain as you and I pass in the flesh from this life to the next, God says it's even more certain that in the next you will live forever. Death is a real thing for all of us. But what Paul is teaching us here, that the gift of grace is more real than that death. That it's only an apparition that happens here, and the reality is what is true there. This is the gift that is offered to you and I this morning. The gift of life, or we may remain in the gift of death. You and I can receive by faith that gift from Christ through His grace appropriated by faith, that we say, Lord, we don't trust in our works. Our works lead to death. But we trust in your work, Christ, that leads to life. You say, well, that that just seems like it's too simple. It's too easy. I want to tell you and assure you there was nothing simple. There was nothing easy on the cross where Christ died on your behalf. That what you and I appropriate by a sincere heart that says, Christ, make your righteousness my righteousness. Make your life my life. Make your reward my reward. I appropriate it, Christ, by believing that you're a truth teller, that you're the covenant keeper, that you're the one who distributes the gifts. I believe that, God. Even help my unbelief. I will believe it more than I will believe I am destined and doomed to death. I will believe what you did for me on the cross assures me of eternal life. And that's how we receive the gift. How is it that we would receive Adam's gift? Just keep on living in the mindset of Adam. Keep on living like you don't need a Savior. Keep on living your life under your own wisdom, your own power with your own insights, without understanding 
that you're lost. Sometimes when we're driving, Lee will ask me, do you know where we are? It's a real moment of truth for me. I know we're on a highway. But if you need to Google it, honey, go ahead. It makes you feel better. And I'll listen. The truth of the matter is I'm lost. But the ugly truth is, rather than admit I need direction, I'll just stay lost. And by staying lost, I'll become even more lost. And the more I go along that lost road, the deeper in lostness I get. Jesus offers you Google Maps in this moment. Do not remain in the gift of your father Adam who's been lost and going down a road of lostness. But receive the gift of direction and purpose and meaning in life, not only now, but eternally so in Christ. This is the gifts that are offered to us. And for some of you, you have received this gift. Hallelujah. For some of you, you have not. And the desperate cry I hear is, don't harden your heart this morning. But hear the Spirit speak. That you are lost and you are hopeless and you are decaying and you are rotting and you are corrupt. And there's only one solution. The giver of life. The better Adam. The one who kept the law for you and me. What is the future from these gifts these two men offer? From Adam we get working in futility. We stay under the curse knowing that our, our work our lives will struggle in frustration. That's the future until we die. And then that futility goes deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. That frustration gets more complex with each passing millennium. But Jesus offers us a gift Paul says here in verse 18, Therefore by the one trespass it led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abound all the more. So that as in sin reigned in death, grace may also reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. One of the wonderful characteristics of Christ is this. He's omniscient. He knows everything. Not only does he know everything that's going to happen, he knows everything that's not going to happen. Not only does he know the implications of everything that's going to happen, but he knows, he knows the implications of everything that's not going to happen. He knows how all the dominoes fall. He knows how all the dominoes don't fall. 
And he knows the implications of both sides. He's also omnipotent. He's all-powerful. There's not a random molecule in the universe that's not under his control or under his power, his strength. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to Christ. Even the authority to give you and I life. Not only is he omniscient and omnipotent, but he's omnipresent. That means that Christ is the same Christ in the future that He's already there. He's the same Christ of the past that was already there. He's the same Christ in the present that's already here. And not only is He here and now, and not only is He in the future, and not only is He in the past, but by His omnipresence, He surrounds all of time. And so that the promise that Christ makes to you and I today, that He will not forsake you and I, the promise that His righteousness is our righteousness has already been completed in the future by His presence there. As much so as it is completed in the now. The same faith and assurance that you have today will be the same faith and assurance you have before the throne. Let me turn real quick. You don't have to, but I'll give you the reference. First Timothy, I'm sorry, Second Timothy chapter 4, verse 6. This is the Apostle Paul right before he's literally about to lose his head. He's coming to the end of his days, the end of his ministry. He knows that he's going before the throne of God. Hear what he says. I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. The time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race, I have kept the faith, and henceforth there is laid up for me now a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, the day of judgment. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Doesn't sound like a man who's afraid to come before the throne of God, does it? Doesn't sound like a man who was afraid to live, does it? It was a man who knew he had kept the faith and run the race, and now he goes to receive righteousness and the fullness of all of that means to himself. Paul had no fear of the future and what it might hold because of the assurance that he had in the present. Well, how do we begin to put on this gift and how do we apply it? One is we need to understand and accept the depth of our own depravity. The Bible many times asks us to consider ourselves. Take, take stock. Take an evaluation of who you are apart from Christ. And then determine what you will see and what your future holds. Understand and accept, though, that without Him there is zero hope. Without Him there is not life. Without Him there's only corruption. 
and destruction. And then do this. Evaluate the offers between the two. Look at the two men's offer to you. And then make a decision. Either receive His righteousness now and live within the power of His glory or refuse it and live in destruction. And then finally, in choosing life, you by default choose freedom for your future. When you choose this life that Christ offers, you can be free from the fear of death, free from the fear of judgment, free from the fear of being rejected, free from the fear of ever being cast out. I don't know what will give you and I more significant in today than knowing that truth for tomorrow. In the same way that those springs flow at the source of the St. John's River, Our life flows from the source of the cross that springs forth the love of God for you and me. We should drink deep and often. Let's pray. Gracious Christ, we see our justification in you.